Okay, brothers and sisters uh, in the faith, welcome to another episode of the BHP, the Bible History Project. Today we're going to talk about the third feast of the Autumn Festivals, which is also the seventh and last feast of Yahuwah's Moedim. So this is the last one, the Feast of Tabernacles. So what is the Feast of Tabernacles all about? Why are we studying it? Why are we even observing the Feast? of our father Yahuwah. Well, if you have been following the series concerning the Moedim, and if you've been following the BHP for quite some time, you already know the meaning of the word feast. It means appointed time, and these appointed times have been determined by our father Yahuwah in advance, in fact, even before the creation of the world, to be fulfilled by his son Yahusha, to carry out the work of redemption and eventually restoration. Now, when we look at the Moedim, we have here on this chart the feasts. So you have the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits. The first three feasts basically talk about the work of redemption because it corresponds to what Yahushua did on those feasts in sequential order. Yahushua died, he was in the grave, and then he appeared resurrected, right? And so that is basically the gospel message, and it's the work of redemption. And then he eventually sent the Holy Spirit to empower those who belong to Yahusha to carry out the will of Abba and to testify about Yahusha to initiate the work of restoration. So after redemption, there was restoration. And when it comes to restoration, that will be fulfilled in the rest of the Moedim, Feast of Trumpets, the Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, because on the Feast of Trumpets, Yahusha returns for the assembly and then on a day of atonement, Yahushua will judge the kingdoms of the earth because they will belong now to our King Yahushua. And so in the uh, day of trumpets is going to be announced basically that the world is going to be under the kingship of Yahushua, but he will carry out the work of judgment when he returns here on earth on the Mount of Olives on a day, on a day of atonement to bring about judgment upon the earth. And then this will be followed by the Feast of Tabernacles event. And this is what we're gonna find out. What does this Moedim point to? What will Yahusha do next? So when we look at it in sequential order, it makes sense, doesn't it, right? Yahusha dies, Yahusha's in the grave, Yahusha is resurrected, Yahusha sends the Holy Spirit to carry out the work of restoration. And so to do that, Yahusha will return for the assembly. He will execute judgment and then the last and final part of the work of restoration will be manifested on a feast of tabernacles. And so what is the feast of tabernacles all about? Before we go there, just, there's just something I want to point out really quickly because we've been studying the feast for quite some time, but there's something we haven't yet discussed and I think it's important that we discuss it today. In Leviticus 23, which is the chapter which tells us all about the feast, you look at what Yahuwah says concerning the feast. He says, these are my feasts, right? So these are Yahuwah's feasts. Now, the word feast in Hebrew, as we already know, is Moed. And so you can look at the English on the left side, the Hebrew on the right side, it is Moed. The plural is Moedim. So it's my feasts. However, when we go to Deuteronomy 16, 16, it mentions three times a year, all your males shall appear before Yahuwah your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Yahuwah and he ended. And so here in Deuteronomy 16, it mentions three feasts, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, why does it not mention Passover, Day of Atonement, Feast of First Fruits? Why does it leave that out or the Day of Trumpets? There's a reason why, and the reason why is when we look at the word feast in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles, it uses a different Hebrew word. What do you mean? Let's take a look at the Hebrew word used, which is translated here, feast. Well, it turns out it is not the word moed, but a different word, chag, H2282. So there are two Hebrew words that is translated feast when we read it in the English Bible. Are you confused? <laughs> this is why we have to be careful and we have to understand the meaning of these two different Hebrew words. And so when we see, uh, when Yahuwah says in Leviticus 23, my feast, he's talking about moed, is moed. But in Deuteronomy, when it talks about the feast of the tabernacles, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of weeks, he's talking about the Hebrew word 2282, chag. So what's the difference between the two? We already know what Moedim means, appointed time. The word chug, well, that basically means a festival gathering. This is where people eat food and drink and have a good time. This is what we call today a party, right? Having a good time, eating together, having fellowship with the people that we love. That's a, the, the meaning of the word chug. And so what we find is that in the scriptures, there are seven Moedims, but there are only three actual feasts where people get to eat together and enjoy each other's company. All of them are Moedim. All of them are appointed times. However, only three are designated as a party, as a time for people getting together and celebrate. Which are they? Unleavened bread, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles. So on Passover, they don't really get together and have a feast. On Day of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, they don't really get together and have a feast, you know? Um, it's only on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles, that's when they have chug, that's when they have a party. However, we all know that in these Moedims, there's a holy convocation. This is when we proclaim and we rehearse the appointed times of Yahuwah Abba. So we'll look at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so of the three feasts of the Autumn Feast, when, when do the people of God really get together and have a big party? It is during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the truth of it is, that out of all the feasts, the favorite one is the Feast of Tabernacles, because especially when you uh, when people celebrate today to go to Israel, you know, they have like different booths and every booth, they kind of specialize in cooking their own special kind of food and people can go visit different booths and taste their food and there's hospitality shared, there's a lot of joy and festivities, it's really fun, the most fun time during the entire year for the people of Israel was the festival of tabernacles, this is why people look forward to the feast of Tabernacle. So what is it all about? Well, the word tabernacle in Hebrew is the word what? 
It's not Tagalog, okay? Suka. What is the meaning of suka? Well, suka means tabernacle, booth, tents, right? And so that's where you get the Feast of Tabernacles from. It's from the Hebrew word suka, which basically means some kind of temporary place, like a tent. Because when you have a tent, it's not meant to it's not meant to be uh, permanent. It's meant to be used because you are going from place to place, because you are a pilgrim. You don't have your permanent place. You're a sojourner. So you're going from place to place, and you live in tents. This is how the nomads live. And so sukkah, that's what it refers to, a place that is not permanent, like a tent, like a booth, uh, like a tabernacle. This is why the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles is also called Sukkot, okay? And so there are different designations, different names for the same celebration. We have Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called Festival of Shelters. Sometimes it's called Feast of Booths, Shelters, Booths, Tabernacles. They all mean the same thing, Sukkah, right? A place that is not permanent. So these are some of the designations for the Feast of Tabernacles. When you come across these names, you know what they're talking about. It's about the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Shelters, Feast of Booths. So what do we need to understand about the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot? So that we can know what we can apply and carry out in our observance of this feast. The book of Leviticus 23, 33, 35, then Yahuwah spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to Yahuwah. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So what is the celebration, the observance of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles all about? First of all, it's celebrated on the 15th day of the seventh month. And so on the first day of the first month, we have trumpets. On the 10th day of, the, of uh, the seventh month, we have what? Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement leads to the 15th day of the seventh month, which is the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. How many days is the celebration? Well, the Bible says seven days to Yahuwah. Seven days. And the first day is to be a holy convocation. This is why on the first day, of our observance of the Feast of Tabernacles, we're going to meet together and have an assembly, a special gathering, or a worship service, and we will proclaim the teachings of Yahuwah. We will honor and memorialize the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to Scripture, we should also regard this day, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as a special Sabbath. We will do no customary work on it. So when people think about the Feast of Tabernacles, automatically they, they think of seven days of celebration, seven days of party, basically. This is seven days of booth time, shelter time, where you get to really enjoy and fellowship with each other. And this is really something that's, when you think about this, is, this is something that you kind of really want to do, right? I mean, I wish somehow, some way we are able to do this in the future. But of course, we're just so disjointed. We are living so far apart from each other. It's kind of impossible to carry out this work today, right? But I wish we could do this somehow because it's going to be so fun. I mean, some religious organizations, they actually rent like a camping site. 
and they have different boots and they, they try to follow this as best as they can because it's so festive and it's so fun. So there's no customary work on the first day, but it turns out it's not just seven days. If we keep reading, let's read 36 to 38. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by choir to Yahuwah. So seven days of giving offering. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to Yahuwah. It is a sacred assembly. And you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of Yahuwah, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to Yahuwah, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and grain offerings, everything on this day besides the Sabbaths of Yahuwah, besides your gift, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to Yahuwah. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is unique. Not only is it celebrated for seven days, but there's a bonus day, right? An eighth day. Now you, might, you might be thinking, why is it seven days and an extra day? Why did it not just say eight days, right? Why is there seven days and then another eighth day, which is also a Sabbath? I want you to keep that in mind. Because we'll talk about that later on because of its prophetic implications. Why don't you keep that in mind? Seven days plus an extra eighth day. The eighth day is also a holy convocation. The eighth day is also considered a Sabbath. So the first day and the eighth day, we have a holy convocation, right? It's set apart as a Sabbath. And throughout the Feast of Tabernacles, the people of God offer because this is the completion of the harvest because the harvest season of the people of Israel, they run from April to about the end of October or November. That's the harvest season. So at, they're at the tail end of the harvest season. And so they're bringing all the harvest in. And when you have all the harvest and it's bountiful, you celebrate with a party and you have a lot of Thanksgiving and it's a joyous occasion, much like in the United States when people have and celebrate Thanksgiving. Right? They celebrate the bounty that the earth gives. It's kind of like that. And so the people of Israel, they celebrate the provision of God that he gives to his people Israel by means of agriculture. Okay, so it's, it's like based on agriculture as well. What else uh, do we need to know about this feast? Well, let's read 39 to 40. Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land. So it's a gathering of the harvest, the crops of the land, right? You shall keep the feast of Yahuwah for seven days, and the first day shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willow, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before Yahuwah your God for seven days. Something was instructed to the people of Israel, which obviously we cannot perform today. You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branch of palm trees, bow of the bows of uh, leafy trees. I think this was used to kind of build the temporary boots when they were traveling uh, throughout the wilderness, right? Of course, we cannot do that today. However, the Bible does mention the eighth day is also a holy convocation and it's also a Sabbath. So the first day and the eighth day are both Sabbaths. And so basically what we have is we have seven days and a bonus day, the eighth day. And the eighth day is called the last and great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So when you go to Israel, 
and they're talking about the last great day, they're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Specifically, what day? The eighth day. So the eighth day was the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what was the purpose of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles? Because these feasts often have purposes. What was the main significance and the main purpose of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles? Leviticus 23, 41 to 43, you shall keep it as a feast to Yahuwah for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahuwah, your God. So what was the purpose of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, Yahuwah himself says, you shall dwell in booths. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths, Feast of Shelter, Sukkah, right? You shall dwell in booths for seven days, and why are they made to dwell in booths in seven days throughout this celebration? Because your generations should know that Yahuwah made the children of Israel dwell in booths. So the native Israelites, together with the foreigners who were with them, they traveled and journeyed throughout the wilderness for how long? 40 years throughout the wilderness, right? And so they journeyed the wilderness for about 40 years. And in their journey in the wilderness, they stayed in booths. They stayed in tents because they did not have a permanent place. And so Yahuwah wanted the people of Israel to remember that. But is this just for the need of Israelites? No, it's also for the strangers or those who are not native Israelites. This is why Numbers 15, 15 and 16 says, One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before Yahuwah. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. And so according to the law of our father Yahuwah, during the days of the journey of Israel, whenever there were people who were not native Israelites and they wanted to join the assembly, one law applied to both. There was no one law applying to the Gentiles, another law applying to the Israelites. No, the law given to Israel applied also to the Gentiles or to the strangers. And so even today, when we belong to Yahushua, we are now connected to Israel. And so the Ten Commandments that was given first to Israel, although it's for all humanity, it's something that we still need to observe. So the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles is basically to remember how Yahuwah guided the people of Israel in the wilderness journey to go to the promised land. Before, because before they went to the promised land, they had to wait for 40 years. And the reason why they had to wait 40 years was because of their faithlessness, right? In many ways, our journey today here on earth is like a wilderness journey. And so while we're waiting on earth, we memorialize the Feast of Tabernacles and remember how our ancestors, the people of Israel, how what they dealt with and what happened to them and how Yahuwah guided them and learn from that and apply it even today in our journey here on earth. So we have Sukkoth is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Shelters, Feast of Boots. So that's basically the theme of, <coughs> of the Feast of Tabernacles. However, we're going to add to the designations of Sukkoth because 
in the book of Exodus 34, 22, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. Celebrate the Feast of Weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Do you remember the Feast of Weeks? This was Pentecost, right? This was after the first three feasts. The first three feasts, the focus was on barley. That was the main, the main um, harvest because barley would ripen first before wheat. They would plant it at the same time, but uh, hard, but the barley would, would, would ripen first. And later on, they would harvest the wheat, which was on the Feast of Weeks. But the Feast of Ingathering talks about another harvest. And so, so that's something to keep in mind. In fact, it's even called the Festival of the Final Harvest. And so in, when you think of harvest, you think of people being added to the kingdom, right? And so that's something to also keep in mind. So we have Sukkot called Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Shelters, Feast of Booths, and its emphasis is on the booth. It's on the shelter, the tabernacle. And there's also a focus on the gathering, the harvesting. It's the final harvest, okay? However, there's also another theme. So basically we have two themes, the, the theme of booth, the tabernacle, the theme of gathering or harvesting, and another theme of the uh, celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles is the presence of joy. The Bible says you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. In Deuteronomy 16, 13, and 15, you must observe the festival of shelters. What is that again? Tabernacles. For seven days at the end of the harvest season, after the grain has been threshed and grapes have been pressed, this festival will be a happy time of celebrating with your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, foreigners, orphans, and widows from your towns. For seven days, you must celebrate this festival to honor Yahuwah your God at the place he chooses for it is he who blesses you with bountiful harvest and gives you success in all your work this festival will be a time of great joy for all and so the feast of tabernacles is a celebration characterized by joy it's a happy time a time of celebration a time of great joy for all. In fact, it's a command that we must celebrate with joy. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, no one is allowed to be sad. You cannot be sad during the Feast of Tabernacles because on that day we will celebrate the love of Yahuwah and we will thank him for the bountiful harvest that he has blessed us with. So these are the characteristics of the Feast of Tabernacles. It has like three different themes. The first theme is about the tabernacle itself, the sukkah, the sukkah, right? And then the Feast of then the gathering, the harvesting, and then great rejoicing. We'll look at all three themes and see how it plays out in the, prophes the prophecies that will take place in the future. Now let's talk about sukkah or the shelters. What is the purpose of that? Why does Yahuwah want us to memorialize that? What has this got to do with us? Does it still pertain and apply to us who are living in this era before judgment day takes place? Absolutely, absolutely. We'll look at that. We'll look at the history of Sukkoth and how it transforms as we continue to follow the work of, the work of restoration. It begins in Genesis 33, uh, verse three. Remember Jacob? Jacob is Israel, right? He will become Israel. He will become the father of the Israelites. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, remember? 
when Jacob went on ahead, as he approached his brother, who was his brother, Esau, remember what happened to them? They did not have um, a good departure. Jacob left, ran away because of his fear for, of Esau, but then they would reconcile uh, eventually. And so this was the meeting point. He bowed to the ground seven times before him. So Esau turned around and started back to Seir the same day. Jacob, on the other hand, traveled on to Sukkoth. Sukkoth. There he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. That's why the place was named Sukkoth, which means shelters. And so the one who named Sukkoth, Sukkoth, was who? Jacob. It started with Jacob. He names a place and he calls it Sukkoth. And the reason why he calls it Sukkoth was because he created shelters for his livestock. So Jacob, being the master, he had a livestock and he created shelters for his livestock. Right to protect them, to feed them, to guide them. Okay, so a place is called Sukkoth, and so automatically we think of Sukkoth as a place where you are sheltered, protected, and guided. Right, because someone who made the shelter is one overseeing it. And so after Israel, Jacob and his ancestors, when they become enslaved by Pharaoh, and they became enslaved in Egypt, they were eventually set free. Right. They left Ramses, they left their, uh, their slavery, and they were going to travel to the promised land. And so when they left that night, what happened? Is Exodus 12, 37, that night, the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. So they left Ramses, they left Egypt on their way to the promised land, and they started for Sukkoth. Perhaps that was the first stop, Sukkoth, place of shelter, right? And so we know that the people of Israel, Jacob's people, the Sukkoth, it's something that characterizes their history. And let's continue to follow that history because Yahuwah himself says, when they are to celebrate the Feast of Boots, Feast of Sukkoth or Tabernacles, it is so that the generations may know that Yahuwah made Israel dwell in booths. Why is that? Because when they were journeying to the Promised Land, which took 40 years, they had to have temporary places to live, right? They had to have tents. And this is something that we notice about the people of God. Abraham, what was he? He was pretty much a nomad. He traveled from place to place, right? Same thing with Jacob. Same thing with the people of Israel. And so when they were in the wilderness, they did not have yet a permanent place. And so they would have places where they make tents. You can see the pictures of the tents. However, Yahuwah, because of his supervision over his people, he would tabernacle with his people. How so? He instructed Moses to create the tabernacle. And so the purpose of the tabernacle was to provide the presence of Yahuwah. This is what Yahuwah tabernacling, what Israel means. That's why the word tabernacle is really important because it represents Yahuwah fellowshipping, being with his people. During the days of the wilderness journey, Yahuwah tabernacled with them because he instructed Moses to build a tabernacle. The tent, the tent of meeting. And what do we notice about the tabernacle or the tent of meeting? 
Let's read the book of Exodus 40, 34, 38. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of Yahuwah filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above, above it, and the glory of Yahuwah filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all the journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day it was taken up. But the cloud of Yahuwah was above the, tab was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so when Yahuwah instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, its purpose was to provide a means by which, by which Yahuwah can tabernacle with his people. What does that mean? Yahuwah's glory and his presence will be manifested among his people. This is why the Bible says the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of Yahuwah filled the tabernacle. The glory of Yahuwah mentioned there is called the Shekinah glory. It's a man physical manifestation of the presence of Yahuwah. It meant Yahuwah was with them. And so when this Shekinah glory was not there, it meant trouble for the people of Israel. They need that because when they see the cloud in the temple or in the tabernacle, they're filled with confidence because who's with them? Yahuwah was with them, right? And so Yahuwah's cloud would guide them during the day and Yahuwah's light or pillar of light or fire would guide them throughout the night. And so Yahuwah is guiding them through the tabernacle. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles comes after the Day of Atonement. This is why the Day of Atonement provides cleansing of the priests, the people of Israel, and the place of worship, so that Yahuwah can tabernacle with his people. This way the Day of Atonement leads to a day of joy. And so the Day of Atonement is a day of repentance, a day of uh, hum humiliating ourselves and afflicting ourselves, a day of sorrow, right? Or sorrow for our sins. But this leads to a day of joy. Sorrow leads to joy. That joy is manifested when they celebrate the Feast of tabernacle so we know the tabernacle was a way by which Yahuwah can provide his presence amongst his people but of course the tabernacle was not meant to be permanent right and so eventually when they arrived to the promised land what was the plan the tabernacle would be changed into what the temple who built the temple who dedicated the temple what's his name Solomon. Solomon dedicated the temple which followed the pattern of the tabernacle. Do you know when the temple was dedicated? Let's find out. The book of 1 Kings 8, 1 to 2. Solomon summoned Jerusalem, the elders of Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of the Israelites. They were to bring the Ark of Yahuwah's covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled before King Solomon at the annual, what does it say? Festival of shelters, which is held early in autumn in the month of Ethanim. Then the priests carried the Ark of Yahuwah's covenant in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of Yahuwah. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. For the glorious presence of Yahuwah filled the temple. And Solomon prayed, O Yahuwah, 
You have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. And so that Shekinah glory that was present in the tabernacle is now where? In the temple. You know that? Right? And when was the temple of Solomon inaugurated? When was it dedicated? On the Feast of Shelters. How long was this festival for? In the book of Second Chronicles, so Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly who came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, right, which is what you're supposed to do, for the dedication of the altar. They observed seven days and the feast seven days. Then on the 23rd day uh, of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents. And so after the dedication celebration, which lasted for many days, right, on the eighth day, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, the 22nd day of the seventh month, that's the last of the, that's the great day of the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So after that, they go back home. And so they dedicated the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. And Yahuwah's glory was manifested in the temple. And so Yahuwah now tabernacled with his people through the temple, right? Okay. And so we know what eventually happened uh, during the Christian era. Yahuwah can tabernacle amongst his people through the power of the Spirit. And we now represent the temple of God, right? Those who belong to Yahushua, we receive the Spirit of God. And so this tells us that the Feast of Shelters, it points to the future of the temple of God. And when we look at the presence of Yahuwah, the tabernacle, the temple, eventually the temple would be us. But when we look at the Moedim fulfilled by our King Yahusha, in the autumn feast, Yahusha returns for his assembly on trumpets. Day of judgment, which is on the day of atonement, the second coming, where Yahusha touches down on the earth and destroys those who are against him. And afterwards, there's going to be something else. What does Yahushua do after he judges the world, after he destroys the Antichrist and their armies, and after he imprisons the Satan? Let's read Revelation 20, 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And so when Yahushua returns to earth, destroys the Antichrist and their armies, what does Yahushua do? He imprisons Satan for how long? A thousand years. But you notice there's a small part there that kind of should get our attention, but he'll be released for a little while. But for a thousand years, Satan will be in his prison in the bottomless pit, right? And for that thousand years, guess what's going to happen on earth? Revelation 20, 4 to 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. These are those who overcome and belong to Yahushua and the overcomers. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for the witness to Yahusha and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, 
and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their, or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is uh, he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And so what will happen in a thousand years? Yahusha is going to reign. He's going to be the one to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. What do we call that? A millennial reign, the millennial kingdom, because he's going to reign for a thousand years. Well, he needs headquarters. Where is the headquarters of the millennial kingdom? Philippines? Not the Philippines. It's in Jerusalem. It's going to be there. And Ezekiel 40 to 48, if you get a chance to read it, it details for us what will happen in the millennial kingdom and how a temple is going to be built and used by our king. This is why there's a millennial temple. There's a temple that is planning to be built to, right now in Israel. This is not the Ezekiel temple. This is different. This is the temple that will be desecrated by the Antichrist, right? But there's going to be a temple, according to the book of Ezekiel 40 to 48, that will emerge during the millennial kingdom. When Yahushua is going to reign as king over the earth, of course, Yahuwah is the one who sends him. And so according to, to scholars, and if you read the book of Ezekiel 40 to 48, it details in exact specifications how this temple is going to look like and the dimensions of the temple. And so this is a rendition of how it would look like. Ezekiel's temple, very different from the temple during the days of Solomon, and even during the days of Herod, here's a size comparison, the one on the left in brown, that's Ezekiel's temple or the millennial temple that will be erected during the millennial our king will be Yahushua, he will be king on earth. Compare that to Herod's temple, it's a lot bigger. Compare that to Solomon's temple, it's a lot bigger, right? To give you an idea of how large it is, um, the one on the green, the olive color, the American football field, that's how big it is, so it's several of those. And so it's different in size, it is more grand. This is the temple during the time of the millennial kingdom. And when this temple is built during the time of the millennial kingdom, what's gonna happen? Ezekiel 43, 105. After this, the man uh, brought me back around to the east gateway. Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar of rushing waters and the whole landscape shone with his glory. His vision was just like the others I had seen, first by the Kibar River, and then when he came to destroy Jerusalem, I fell face down on the ground. The glory of Yahuwah came into the temple through the east gateway, Then the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner courtyard, and the glory of Yahuwah filled the temple. And so what we find is that the glory of Yahuwah, before it filled the tabernacle, right, during the wilderness journey for four years, then it filled the temple, one was built by Solomon, and now it's going to fill the millennial temple during the reign of our King Yahusha here on earth. This is why when we look at how Yahusha is going to carry out the work of restoration, what he will do according to the pattern is on the Feast of Tabernacles, he will usher in the millennial kingdom. And so now we have 
this pattern of redemption and restoration. Do you see it? Right? Yahusha dies, he was in the grave, he is resurrected. That's redemption. Restoration begins through the power of the Spirit, empowering those who belong to Yahusha, and it will lead to the return of Yahusha for the assembly, and then his judgment, and then he will rule for how long? A thousand years. And so that is like the that's the plan, the Moedim of Yahuwah to bring redemption and restoration for the people of the world. However, there's something we have to understand. When you look at Yahusha ruling the millennium, where is that rule? That's on earth. That's in Jerusalem. What Apostle Paul once said in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Bible says anything that's on earth, it's only temporary. But there's something that is in heaven, and the one in heaven is what? Eternal. Because a thousand years, even though it's a long time, it's still what? Not eternal. So the seven, the 1,000 year reign of our King Yahusha, that's just the beginning. It's not the start, it's just the beginning. This is why the Feast of Tabernacles, if you still remember, had an extra day. The eighth day. There's seven days. And the eighth day is the last great day. Do you still remember our study concerning the day equivalent to a thousand years? How Yahuwah's plan for the earth was only 7,000 years? Remember? This is why when he created, create, because of creation, we know there are seven days of creation. And on the top, we have what Yahuwah did on each of the days. Separation of light from darkness, separation of waters. Established seed bears fruit, sun, moon, stars, birds and the fish. Man was created on the sixth day. And then on the seventh day was Sabbath. And so each of the day corresponds to how long? 1,000 years. Who said this? The Apostle Peter. When he was talking about the end and the day of Yahuwah. He's talking about one day equivalent to 1,000 years. And so when we finish the, the 6,000 years... We're going to begin the last 7,000 years, which is the seventh day, which is 1,000 years, and that corresponds to the 1,000-year reign of Messiah. And this makes sense because the seventh day, what do we call that? The Sabbath. It's a day of rest. And so for the people of Mashiach, the last 1,000 years is a day of rest and restoration and joy. This is why the last 1,000 years that corresponds to the reign of Messiah here on earth. And so we see the 7,000-year plan of Yahuwah for earth. There's an extra day. It's called the eighth day. Where is that going to be celebrated, this eighth day? And why is it distinct from the seven days? Because when we talk about the, day, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's the seven days all together. And then all of a sudden, an extra eighth day that's kind of detached from the seven days. That's because the seven days corresponds to Yahuwah tabernacling with the people on earth for 7,000 years. You get it? That's for, the, well, that's for the earth. But the eighth is going to be different. This is why when our King Yahushua spoke about the last day or the, uh, 
the eighth day, this is what he said on, on John 7, 37, 38. On the last day, this was the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, that great day of the feast, right? This is the eighth day. Yahushua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so Yahushua made a promise that we will receive rivers of living water. What is that? That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. This was given to us on Pentecost. However, Yahushua, knowing scripture, he mentioned something that ought to help us understand the complete fulfillment of what he said concerning the Holy Spirit. He says that he did this on the eighth day, the last and great day, great day of the feast, which is the eighth day. And what did he say? If anyone thirsts, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of flowing water. When will that be fulfilled completely? Rivers of living water that the Spirit will be received by the people of Yahusha. In Revelation 22, 1 to 5, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. Uh, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so when Yahushua was talking about rivers of the water of life, he was also talking about what? The day when we will be with Yahuwah and Yahushua, who will be our kings, right? Because they will sit on their throne. And so the throne will move from earth to where? To heaven. And in heaven, the Bible says, there, there's no lamp for the Lord God, Yahuwah Abba, will be providing us with light. In fact, it even mentions there's no temple there because Yahuwah will be our temple. And so the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And there in heaven, we shall have access to the pure river of the water of life. Isn't that wonderful? This is why when we are in heaven, this is after the millennium. Okay? Remember, the tabernacle celebration point to the millennial kingdom. However, it goes beyond that. It goes to the eighth day. And the eighth day corresponds to the day when this will be fulfilled. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is not the earth now. This is different. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away also. There was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people god himself will be with them and be their god and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes there shall be no more death or sorrow nor crying there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed boy isn't that awesome before yahuwah would tabernacle with his people with things made by by man's hands the tabernacle right the shekinah glory of god manifested in the tabernacle and then the temple, 
and then the millennial temple. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but we're limited in receiving the Holy Spirit of Yahuwah because our bodies have not yet been redeemed. But when we are in heaven with our new bodies, the Bible says, what will, what will happen? Yahuwah God will tabernacle with his people. Yahuwah God himself, not a tent or, or a temple, but Yahuwah himself will be with his people. And he will be their God. And he will wipe away all their sorrow and their pain and their crying. And this is going to happen in the holy city. And so we have different manifestations of Yahuwah's presence depicted by the tabernacle, temple, millennial temple, and then at last, heaven. So that will complete the work of restoration. Restoration is not completed in the millennial kingdom. Restoration is completed where? In the new heavens and the new earth. So the Feast of Tabernacles and the extra day, the eighth day, that points to our fellowship with Yahuwah Allah forevermore in heaven, which will last forever. This is why when we look at tabernacles and booths and shelters and sukkot, we should remember and think that one day Yahuwah Abba is in the tabernacle with us in heaven and we will be together with our king Yahushua. But let's also look at the Feast of Ingathering. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering, Feast of Final Harvest. And Moses connected the two when he said, celebrate the Feast of Weeks, a Feast of Weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. So during the Feast of Weeks, it was also a time of harvest. This is why on the Feast of Weeks, what happened after the death of Yahusha, after the first three, uh, the three feasts, the Spirit was given, and people were added to the kingdom. What does that mean? It means that the gathering, the reaping during that time was, being, was, was taking place, right? And so at the point when Yahusha's Spirit was being given out, and the assembly and the body of Yahushua is being filled up. That's the work depicted by the Feast of Weeks. However, it mentions after the trumpet is blown, there's going to be that, that, going, to be that uh, going into the skies with our King Yahushua, the Harpatsa, there's going to be a feast of ingathering. And so this is about the final harvest. In other words, there's still more to harvest even after the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest. There's more, it's like the final chance of mankind has. The final chance mankind has is throughout the Millennial Kingdom, which is the Feast of Shelters. This is why in Zechariah 14, 16, and 19, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, Yahuwah of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahuwah of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which Yahuwah strikes the nations and do not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not keep up, that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacle. So during the millennial reign, there are people who still need to be harvested, right? This is why 
during the millennial reign, what is the requirement of Yahuwah and Yahusha on the Feast of Tabernacles, that they would go to Jerusalem and worship the king. And so the Feast of Tabernacles will be observed during the millennial reign. It will be observed not just for Israel, but for those who do not yet belong to Israel. This is why there's still the ingathering, the final harvest. And during the days of the millennial reign, the king, Yahusha, is the one who's going to rule. And when we look at the way our king, Yahusha, will rule, we know that he will rule with an iron hand. But at the same time, it also mentions in Isaiah 55, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come buy me. Yes, come buy wine, milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And so during the millennial reign, those who follow our King Yusha, there's no poverty or hardship. Not only that, Zechariah, it shall be one day which is known to Yahuwah, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be, that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will be the headquarters. This is where true provision will come from. This is where the Holy Spirit will come from. Not only that, in Micah 4, 2, 3, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahuwah, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of Yahuwah from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so during the days of the, the reign of our King Yahushua, those who want to learn the ways of Yahuwah, those who want to learn the teachings of Yahuwah, they go to Jerusalem. That's where they will be taught the ways of Yahuwah. And there will be no wars, only peace. This is why you've probably heard that phrase, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So during the millennial reign, there's no poverty or hardship. There's the presence of the spirit. There's teachings that are true. And there's also peace throughout the land. And so it will be a joyous time. In fact, how joyous and how prosperous will people be during the millennial reign. The book of Isaiah 65, 18 and 25. This is how the light, this is how life is depicted in the millennial kingdom. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. Look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the curse will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they built and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate the vineyards from my people will live as long as trees. And my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be due to misfortune. For they are people blessed by Yahuwah, and their children too will be blessed. 
I will answer them before they even call to me. While they are still thinking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer the prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust in those days. No one will be hurt or destroyed on my whole mountain, Ayah, who have spoken. So this is how the people, the lives of the people are described during the millennial kingdom. Take note, this describes the people who did not belong to Yahushua prior to his return. For those who belong to Yahushua, our bodies have already changed. This is why when we read the book of Revelation 20, when Yahushua returns, there are people sitting on thrones that will be those who belong to Yahushua, who will rule as kings and priests during this reign. But there are people who are being gathered in still. There are people who are being harvested still, right? And what kind of life are they going to experience? It's different from how it's experienced now. There's going to be a change in nature somehow, a change in reality. Perhaps the physics will change because look at the animal behavior, right? The Bible says the snakes will eat, uh, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Like the lion will eat hay like a crow, like a, uh, uh, eat hay like a cow. And so you have these changes. Person is going to live a long time, as long as trees, but there's still the presence of what? Death. It's a different reality, a much better reality, a prosperous society throughout the kingdom of our King Yahusha, right? But there's still the presence of death. However, this millennial kingdom that will be on earth for a thousand years is going to come to an end in Isaiah 66. 22 to 23, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says Yahuwah, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says Yahuwah. And so the millennial, millennial kingdom, thousand years, is going to come to an end after a thousand years. So it's called the millennial kingdom. Right? After a thousand years, it's going to transition into a new reality. The new heavens and the new earth. But you notice, during the millennial kingdom, what is in effect? Sabbath. When do the people worship? During Sabbath. This is why Sabbath was never abolished by Yahuwah. It was never abolished by Yahushua. Because in the millennial kingdom, the temple is going to be open for worship on Sabbath. And this is going to eventually transition to the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more death. People will have everlasting life. And so the final gathering of people in the millennial kingdom will result in more people who will have a new body and receive everlasting life, no more death. And so that's another characteristic of tabernacles. It points to the further work of bringing people into the kingdom, right? Feast of ingathering, feast of final harvest. And lastly, it's a day of great rejoicing, like what we said in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a time of great joy for all. You must celebrate. You must celebrate. Happy times for everyone. And when you think of happy times, especially if you belong to the Hebrew people, oftentimes the, the, the day of greatest joy is the day when the, when, when the people of Israel celebrates a wedding. Yeah, when you think of days of festivities, it is a wedding day. This is why we conducted a study 
in one of our BHPs, I believe, on Hebrew weddings, right? And we looked about, we looked at the Hebrew wedding and the different characteristics of the Hebrew wedding. I just want to share this rather quickly. The Hebrew wedding, which is, you still remember, have different steps. We'll skip all the way to step seven, the return of the bridegroom. Remember, the bridegroom is who? Yahusha. The bride is the church or the assembly. We are betrothed to Yahusha. He's going to return for us so that we can get wed to him. However, he's already signed a contract. And so by law, we are already wedded, but not officially. You get it? There's a different, this is uh, one of the nuances of the Hebrew wedding is kind of different from ours. Because with our wedding system, if one is, for example, you're engaged with someone, there's no legal paperwork. When it comes to Hebrew weddings, even engagement has legal paperwork. And so if you change your mind during the engagement process, you have to file for divorce. Right? And so it's different for the Hebrew wedding. So there's so we're engaged, we're legally bound to our, our King Yahusha. And so we are the bride, Yahusha is the bridegroom. So we're waiting for him to return to officially solemnize the wedding, right? By the father. Neither the bridegroom nor the bride knew the day or the hour when their new home would be complete. Only the groom's father knew. During this time of waiting, the bride would be watching. Uh, with her lamp filled with oil and ready to be lit for her groom's return. When the groom's father declared the new home complete, the bridegroom and his friends would go to claim his bride, usually at midnight to surprise her. As the party approaches the house, one of the men would blow a trumpet, announcing the groom is coming. The sound alerted the bride and her bridesmaids to get dressed for the wedding and light their lamps. The bride, bridegroom and all the attendants would then go to the bridal chamber or they would remain for one week. And so once there, uh, what happens next? And step eight is the wedding day consummation. This leads to the wedding day itself, which in Hebrew is called the hupa. The hupa refers to the canopy that covers the bridal chamber. And beneath this covering, the bride and the bridegroom are reunited. Prior to entering the chamber, the bride remained veiled so that no one could see her face. While the groomsmen and the bridesmaids waited outside, the bride and groom entered the bridal chamber alone. There in the privacy of that place, he entered into physical union for the first time, thereby consummating the marriage that had been covenanted earlier during the engagement. Okay, so that's the uh, consummation of the wedding. Then step nine, after the marriage was consummated, the groom came out of the bridal chamber and announce the consummation of the marriage to husband and wife, and they would celebrate with a glorious marriage supper for seven days. And so there's a distinction to be made between the wedding itself and the wedding supper. Just like even in our weddings today, right? There's the ceremony and there's the reception. And they're usually in different places. It's the same thing when it comes to Hebrew weddings. And this plays out in the book of Revelation. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And so it's a wedding. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So the bride is given white fine linen to wear, which represents the righteous acts of the saints. And there's a wedding that takes place. And afterwards, right, then the angel said to me, right, blessed are the ones who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of 
God. And when is this wedding supper or celebration? Because after the consummation of the wedding, there's a celebration. Where does this celebration take place? 19, 11, and 16, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him and no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so after the wedding, Yahusha is going to take his bride, the assembly with him, and he's going to go to earth. And in earth, he's going to wage war against the armies of the Antichrist. This will take place during a time in the autumn. You know why we know this? Why do we believe it's, it's going to take place during a time in the autumn? If you notice in verse 15, out of his mouth, you read it, you see it? Verse 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. When you think of winepress, what do you think about? Grapes. And when are the grapes usually harvested? Not in spring, not in summer, but when? The autumn. This is why this is going to take place in the autumn. We believe that this will take place on the Day of Atonement, when Yahusha judges and destroys the armies that belong to the Antichrist. And then he will imprison Satan for a thousand years. This is why the Day of Atonement will lead to the wedding supper, the wedding celebration, which is the next verse. Look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. And so basically, according to the Hebrew wedding, and according to Revelation 19, what we have is we have the rapture first, and then there's a wedding that takes place officially, and then the second coming is when Yahushua comes down together with his bride to usher in the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, we will have a supper. We will celebrate during the millennial kingdom with those who belong to our king, Yahushua. This is something that we need to rehearse. This is why here we have the connection between the redemption of Yahushua the work of redemption and the work of restoration. They're connected, right? They're connected. The work of redemption, the work of restoration, they're connected. You can only have restoration when there is redemption. This is why redemption leads to restoration. And this is um, brought to us, This, this we, we can see this also play out in what Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, in the same manner he took also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so according to our King Yahushua, we celebrate his supper that he initiated 
right, to initiate the, the new covenant with us. When he established the supper, he gave, he said his, his body is the bread, the bread is the body, his body, and the cup contains the juice, which is his blood. And so we are to partake of that. This is what we call the Holy Supper before, right, the Lord's Supper. And so according to our King Yahushua, when he established that supper, what did he say is the purpose of it? Let's read Matthew 26. While they were eating, Yahushua took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so this describes the work of what? Redemption. And so Yahushua is telling us to rehearse by partaking of this supper, so that when we rehearse, we remember the sacrifice of Yahushua. When he died on the cross, when he resurrected, after being buried for three days and three nights, this is the work of redemption, and then he connects it to the work of restoration. The next verse, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so Yahushua is telling them, basically, I established this supper because I'm telling you in advance I'm going to die. And what you're going to drink represents my blood. And the bread that's broken represents my body. Right now, you see me. But soon, you will not see me. You will see me arrested and then crucified and he will rise again. And so he gave us the supper by which to remember his death and suffering, right? And we do that yearly. We remember the death and suffering of the King of Egypt. And then he said to his disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And that's after restoration. You see, Yahushua's work of redemption leads to his work of restoration. One day we're going to drink together with the apostles, together with Yahushua, together with Moses. We're going to drink in the Father's kingdom. When it's set up here on earth for a thousand years, it's a day of rejoicing, a day of celebration, a day of happiness for the people of Allah. Until eventually, all of us will dwell in heaven, Yahuwah, tabernacling with us. This is why Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, points, points to that great day of rejoicing. And so brethren, the autumn feasts that we're going to be observing, let's think and remember what Yahushua has done. He sacrifices life to make this great rejoicing possible. And so we look forward to that day when Yahushua is going to appear. Because once he appears, he's going to take us with him, change our bodies. And then we will come back with him to rule during the millennial kingdom. And eventually to be with him forevermore. To never die. To live forever. To be with our king. To be with our father forevermore. With great rejoicing in our life. This is what we're going to celebrate. And we will express our thanksgiving to Yahuwah, our thanksgiving to Yahushua, 
for what they have done and for what they will do in the days of coming, which is coming very, very soon. Brethren, we have so much to hope for, so much to live for, so much to be excited about. This is why whatever is happening in your life, whatever tribulation or trial we're going through, whatever pain or suffering, whatever illness or sickness we're going through, think about that day when Yahushua will appear. Because when he appears, we will share in his glory and our bodies will be redeemed so that we will not groan anymore. Instead, we shall be filled with joy and great rejoicing. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, most holy Yahuwah Abba, thank you so much for showing us your plan, for showing us your purpose that you have determined long ago and you have assigned according to your Moedim. Thank you, loving Father, for thinking of a way to redeem us, that you might restore us. We do not deserve this, but you chose this because of your own pleasure. This describes your overwhelming love for your people. Thank you, Father. We have a reason to live. We have a reason to hope when people nowadays, because of great suffering in life, are losing hope every day. People cry. People die. Many people suffer. You hear the cries of men. You sent your son to die on the cross that all people can be saved. But we know there's still so much work to do. You have given us this work to testify about your son. We are doing our best, but we know we can do more. Father, we need your spirit. We can only do so much. We want our loved ones. We want our families to have their eyes open, to join us in true worship. Father, when we feel your presence, when we do your work, we are filled with joy. How much more when you will fellowship with us, tabernacle with us, when you yourself shall be amongst us. Loving Abba, help us to endure. Help us to work and labor. Help us to do our best to shine brightly before all. Our King Yahushua, as we observe the autumn feast, we will keep our hearts focused on you. Our eyes are fixed on you. You suffered greatly for our sake. You chose to do so because of your love. We love you too. We love you so much. We want to express this to you. We want to express this to our Father in our upcoming feasts. We will consecrate our hearts. We will examine ourselves so that we will know, we will know how much you did for us that we may appreciate with all of our heart and thank you with all of our being for what you have done and what you will continue to do. Father, thank you so much. Always protect us. Deliver us from harm and danger. Bless our families. Bless our celebrations. May we receive, Father, the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask and beg everything 
In the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen.